The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Greentech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. Shale Khan is away. This week, a conversation about the unique moment for climate politics in America. We don't do a ton of politics on this show, but we have a guest who has a really strong body of work and brings a special kind of wonkiness to her political research. Dr. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's an expert on political behavior, which includes public opinion, voting behavior, and how policy is influenced. And she applies that expertise to environmental issues. Leah is also a prolific writer. She's published many peer-reviewed pieces. Her popular writing is featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And she's just now wrapping up a book about how clean energy laws are formed and fought against. I was really interested in talking to Leah about the influence of the Green New Deal on today's national and state politics. Is it as seismic as it feels? Because there's something different about the way people have reacted to it. Sure, it's broken down on party lines, but the underlying polls show us that it has a lot of support. So for the last decade, the conventional understanding of climate and energy politics has been a deep red-blue divide. Democrats have been scared of talking too much about climate on the national stage because the Republican Party has been so against it. And the Republican Party has been outright hostile to climate policy, thinking that that's what the majority of their voters also think. And then in steps the Green New Deal. It's revealing something extraordinary. According to Yale Climate Surveying, 81% of registered voters say they would support the Green New Deal. And 64% of Republicans say they would support it. So what does this reveal about how climate change plays among the electorate? And is there a disconnect between what people want and what policymakers think they want? And if there is this sort of underlying difference between the policy and what people want, what's holding it back? That is Leah's area of expertise, and I had a lot of fun exploring these issues with her. So enjoy the conversation. Dr. Leah Stokes, thanks for being here with us. Thanks so much for having me on. I want to start with public opinion. I want to frame the Green New Deal in the context of how people feel about it. So like any good political scientist, you dig deep into polls, into public opinion. How do people feel about the Green New Deal? Like many things with public opinion polling, uh, you know, it really depends on how you ask the question. And with the Green New Deal, it also depends on when you asked it. So, um, 
you know, when the idea first started to come out in the fall after Sunrise Movement actions at Nancy Pelosi's office, um, initially the Green New Deal was very popular. Some of the first polls to come out about it from groups like the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication uh, were really positive. Um, But then uh, the Fox News effect sort of took over, and David Roberts at Vox has written about that. And, um, you know, that really put... uh, the Green New Deal idea through the ringer. And um, it did crash support, uh, particularly amongst Republicans who are the group, you know, to a large extent watching Fox News. Um, But even with that ringer that it went through, um, there's some polling from groups like Data for Progress. Uh, Sean McElwee has written this up in the New York Times in March, and it really shows that there's still a majority support uh, in almost every state for the Green New Deal. So, you know, the idea still has legs. Uh, It's definitely going to go through the American political system and uh, go through polarization as pretty much every issue does these days. But, um, you know, people know that the climate crisis is a really big problem and they want to have the government start dealing with it. So I think that the Green New Deal still has some potential as an idea. So what are the different framings that people react either positively or negatively to across party lines? Yeah, so I'm working on a paper right now with a few colleagues that looks exactly at that issue. And it builds on some earlier work that I've published looking at renewable portfolio standards, basically clean energy laws at the state level. So if if you ask about specific parts of the Green New Deal, for example, a job guarantee, affordable housing, a minimum wage, you know, those are all really popular ideas. And some of them are even quite bipartisan. So in the work that I'm working on right now, this unpublished research, we find that job guarantees are really popular, as is affordable housing, actually. So, um, and of course, when you ask poor people, would you like the minimum wage to be raised to $15 an hour? You know, they support that. So the idea that the Green New Deal has, which makes it quite distinct from other kinds of climate policy, is that it packages in social policies, many of which address growing income inequality, address the housing crisis that's playing out across the country, that really gets at things that people are dealing dealing with in their everyday lives. And so that's what I think makes it more popular. Um, and of course, more broadly, with the climate policy parts of the package, there are certain things that people really like. So research and development for clean energy is the perennial favorite of the public. Everybody loves that. It usually gets support above 90%, and it's quite bipartisan. Uh, The second most popular thing are those clean energy standards, those RPSs um, that were initially passed at the state level, but that groups have been trying to pass at the federal level for a long time. And in the research that I'm working on right now, we asked about, well, would you like a clean energy standard with, let's say, nuclear or with um, carbon capture and sequestration? And, you know, it doesn't really matter how you phrase it. People really like this idea of setting a target and a goal for how much clean energy uh, we're going to produce. The third thing that we've been finding in our work, which is quite new and interesting, is actually that prosecuting fossil fuel companies is pretty darn popular. That's probably the third most popular thing after R&D and clean energy standards. Um, you know, this is a growing idea coming out of some of the investigative journalism work about Exxon and Shell. Um 
And the public, much like they supported the Department of Justice going after big tobacco, they're increasingly supporting the government going after fossil fuel companies for climate denial uh, and fraud and uh, delay on climate action for several decades now. Um, In other work that I have done uh, looking at clean energy standards, things that tend to work from a framing perspective are focusing on jobs, focusing on air quality, talking about bipartisan support. So really framing it around the benefits of action. And there are a lot of benefits from climate policy. Of course, uh, climate change as a word and as an issue area is highly polarized. That's not surprising since fossil fuel companies and electric utilities have spent the past 30 years raging a denial campaign in the public view. Um, So when you talk about it in terms of climate change, as opposed to talking about in terms of jobs or clean energy, you get less support. And of course, if you talk about costs, whether that be at the household level or in terms of spending, uh, that tends to reduce support as well. And a a kind of interesting point is that uh, for the transportation sector, there isn't a lot of support for banning uh, automobiles, you know, combustion engine automobiles uh, and requiring total uh, the entire fleet to be electric vehicles by a certain date. And unfortunately, you're going to need to make big changes in the transportation sector to deal with the climate crisis. So overall, I think, you know, certain policies like R&D and clean energy standards and even potentially judicial approaches to dealing with fossil fuel companies are really popular. And then other things like the costs and banning combustion engine automobiles, they are not so popular. I'm trying to think of another non-energy political issue that mirrors what we see with something like the Green New Deal. The closest thing I can think of is something like healthcare, where you have the traditional conservatives in the Republican Party who have fought tooth and nail against any kind of uh, you know government guarantee for health insurance. And when you actually look at what a lot of conservative voters want, they like that idea. And they were really upset when Republicans, you know, attempted to dismantle that system put in place by the Obama administration. And and that's what Democrats ran on, realizing that they could capitalize on that issue. Does does this broader policy of the Green New Deal and emerging climate politics as we see them today, does it mirror something like healthcare or are there other issues where you think there's a good corollary? Yeah, the American political system has gone through a period of asymmetric partisan polarization over the past several decades. What do we mean when we say asymmetric partisan polarization? What we mean is that the right has moved very far right, while the Democratic Party has largely stayed put. And that has really dragged apart the two parties on lots of different issues. Pretty much, you can't name an issue where you don't see this effect. Um Climate change, according to some research, is the most polarized issue. And that's really not surprising when you think about the denial campaigns that fossil fuel companies have waged for um, many decades. There's some amazing research um, by a sociologist at uh, Yale University, Justin Farrell, who, where he looks at the ways that reports from denial organizations, you know, groups like in the 1990s, the Global um, Climate Coalition, these 
groups and companies that were promoting climate denial, you know, the exact words that they put in their reports end up in speeches that the presidents make, end up in the news media. And so that really helps to fuel misunderstanding and polarization in the public on climate change. So, yes, overall, this is happening across the board for many different issue areas, including healthcare, uh, as you mentioned. But climate has it in spades. You know, we probably have it the worst compared to any other issue area. I think what's most interesting is if you ask people about these issues before, say, Fox News gets a hold of it, voters react very differently and the polls can shift pretty quickly based on that immediate messaging. What I argue in my research, I have a forthcoming book called Short-Circuiting Policy, which looks at clean energy laws in the American states. And what I argue is that public opinion is a constructed fact in American politics. And so, you know, what interest groups are doing is that they are trying to craft a version of the public's preferences and show that to politicians. They can do that in more honest ways by running actual polls with fair questions. And I think, you know, groups like Data for Progress are doing that. They are asking questions in honest ways that include costs that give a fairly accurate picture of what the policy would look like. But you can also do it in fairly dishonest ways. And that's often called astroturfing. Basically, what that means is that you run these fake public campaigns. So For example, in Kansas, there's evidence that Americans for Prosperity, the group funded by Koch Industries, uh, gave money to a campaign to make it seem like Kansas seniors really didn't like the clean energy standard in that state. And uh, there's there was no grassroots group of Kansas seniors rising up and saying, wow, we really can't afford this clean energy in Kansas. That was just a fake campaign. And it can get really extreme. So, for example, in New Orleans, a utility um, actually paid actors to show up to a city council meeting. They spent $29,000 to get a bunch of actors to show up. And those people were not average members of the public. They were people paid to represent the views of the electric utility. Um, So what we see is that the public is kind of a tool or a weapon that gets used in American politics to construct certain visions of what the public wants for politicians and for their staff. But let me push back on that a little bit, because I don't think that those efforts have worked all that well. Sure, they work in isolated cases. And when you get to a certain level of technology adoption, as you've outlined in your research, all of a sudden incumbents swoop in and they engage in campaigns like this. And it's and it's fairly common, particularly in clean energy politics. But largely, we've seen a bunch of southeastern states, a bunch of midwestern states really push hard on renewable energy standards. And although some have scaled them back, you still have partisan debates over how much they should expand or or if they should be frozen. In general, the march of progress has continued. And public opinion has stayed really strong for specific issues like renewable energy development. So in my sense is that although the public is a tool, they they get wise to it and it hasn't shifted overall public opinion in favor of the clean energy transition. Well, um, 
You know, I think that's a very common point of view, and I think there's some truth there. Um, But the book that I'm finishing makes a very different argument. So uh, from about 2008 until 2014, there was massive polarization about clean energy at the state level. So if you look at public opinion polls from groups like Pew or the Yale Project, uh, you can see a huge drop in Republican support for clean energy standards during that time period. I'm talking about Republican support falling below 50 percent in many states and below 50% overall nationally. And I think that that is a reflection of the campaigns that many interest groups, primarily private electric utilities, but also fossil fuel companies like Coke Industries, were waging against clean energy standards. You saw this play out through the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. You also saw it play out through the Edison Electric Institute, which is the uh, association of private utilities. And it's really easy to focus on the happy stories. Um, You know, New York passing a law a few weeks back, California last year. There are seven states right now that have 100% clean energy targets, and we should celebrate those cases. They're really exciting. But the fact is, um, only 55% of the electricity system is actually covered by a clean energy standard right now. And uh, I've done a lot of work in my book trying to think about, you know, where do we need to be on clean electricity if we want to be tackling the climate crisis? And we are behind. That is just a fact. And we are behind, in my opinion, because of electric utilities. They have spent a lot of time and effort, whether it's waging these fairly nefarious astroturfing campaigns or working through other kinds of quiet politics behind the scenes at public utility commissions and state legislatures. So, you know, um, there are several states like Ohio, for example, which passed an RPS in 2008, I believe. It was either 2008 or 2009. And, you know, they made a commitment to doing that. In fact, it was passed. It was a Republican-sponsored bill passed on Earth Day. You know, that's another era when we think about clean energy standards. And what happened was, you know, they, or the Republicans started to attack that law year after year. First Energy was very involved in that. AEP was very involved. And today, Ohio only gets 2% of its electricity system from renewables, and yet it is still attacking this law. So I I think that um, overall, we are making progress in certain states. And I would say that journalists in particular uh, do an amazing job of uncovering some of these nefarious astroturfing campaigns or n- uncovering the way that electric utilities are attacking these laws. Um, the Energy and Policy Institute, a really amazing think tank, has also been doing amazing work on this. But Overall, there are still lots of attacks playing out, whether it's against net metering or renewable portfolio standards um, that go unnoticed or that don't get reported on or astroturf campaigns that never really get brought to the light of day. Um, And when we think about the scale of the climate crisis, these tactics to delay progress are really problematic. We need more utilities to come on board and become partners in the clean energy transition. And right now, probably the only example you could come up with for that is Excel Energy. So, um, yeah, so I tend to take a slightly different view, but um, perhaps uh, it will be controversial when my book comes out. (laughs) No, I don't think it's all that controversial. It sounds to me like it's just a different set of benchmarks. So if you're benchmarking this against where we need to go in order to meet the challenge of the climate crisis, then we haven't gone far enough. And clearly, a lot of these attacks have worked to slow down the transition. If you're just looking purely at economics and organizations shifting over a period of time 
who were once resistant, who now Im- sort of embrace it or fully embrace the transition, then I think it's it's definitely a success story. But for me, it's just like how are you how are you benchmarking where progress should be and where where it could be uh, if you didn't have this type of resistance? I don't know. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yes, that's a totally fair way. And I did a lot of thinking um, when I was writing the book about that exact issue. And I I generally believe that um, the stories that we tell are about benchmarking vis-a-vis goals passed in legislation. And that is just not sufficient because when we think about the fact that only seven states have 100 percent targets, that only 55 percent of the electricity system is even covered by these RPS policies, you know, that that is not on the scale of the problem. If you looked at the Waxman-Markey bill, um, they had in that law from 2009, which did not pass the Senate, um, a a clean energy standard that was supposed to be 20% by next year, 20% by 2020. And I've been looking to try to understand, well, would that have pushed us or not? And actually, it would have pushed us because um, technically you could have met that uh, with 8% energy efficiency. So let's say the benchmark was 12%. Well, the U.S. isn't even on track to meet that. We are not even on track to have 12 percent uh, renewable energy by 2020. So, uh, you know, I just feel that we are quite behind and we have been complacent in sort of saying, well, here are the laws that we have as opposed to the laws that we need. And something like a Green New Deal is really bringing that fact back into the conversation by saying we must have solutions on the scale of the problem. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right, Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, and then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight and what they're up to, it's uplight.com gtm to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. So resistance from the incumbents and their influence on the political system is a major reason why we don't have accelerating action in the way that we should. There's also this other shift that you've uncovered in your research, which is all about lawmakers on the local and national level and their disconnect from voter perceptions, which brings us back to the original point about how voters feel about this issue, which is often different from the way it's framed in politics or in the press. What have you uncovered about how legislators and legislative staffers feel about what they think voters want versus what voters actually want? Yeah. So 
I believe strongly that we must address the climate crisis. Um, and I often wonder why, when we run these public opinion polls year after year, uh, the the government and politicians and the, their staff don't really listen to the voices of the public when they say they want action on climate change. So I undertook a study with uh, two colleagues, Alex Hurdle fernandez and Matt O'Mildenberger. And what we did was we tried to understand, you know, what do chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress, these are the most senior staff in congressional offices who help senators and congressional representatives decide how to vote on a bill, something like a Green New Deal or a Waxman-Markey or a big climate uh, piece of legislation. You know, they hear from the public all the time. And the question is, do they actually accurately perceive that the public wants action on climate change? So we asked them, what do you think the public wants in terms of climate action, the people living in your district? We asked them that. And what we found is that um, these staff are really bad at estimating what the public wants on climate change. We have also replicated these results at the state level with politicians themselves as well as their staffers, and we find the same thing. Thing. These staffers and politicians do not know that there is broad-scale support for RPSs. They do not know that there's broad-scale support for climate change action. Um, and we tried to understand why that is in our study. And what we found was that interest groups, again, play a really important role. So the more that congressional offices are meeting with groups like the American Petroleum Institute, or they're taking money from fossil fuel companies, the worst job they do at guessing that the public wants action on climate change. And we also put um, a list experiment in the study, which basically is a way to elicit sensitive items. So if you were to ask a staffer, you know, have you ever changed your mind about climate policy after meeting with a fossil fuel company, they would not say yes, because they are smart people and they know that that is not politically acceptable to say. But what we can do is we can ask that in a sensitive way uh, where we can elicit sort of the true beliefs of people by giving half of the sample four items and asking how many do they agree with, and then the other set half of the sample five items. And what we found is when we asked chiefs of staff and legislative directors in Congress, have you ever changed your mind about a bill under consideration in Congress? after talking with a campaign contributor. Somebody like a big corporation like, let's say, ExxonMobil has given you money. Have you ever changed your mind about something like the Waxman-Markey bill or the Green New Deal? Well, 45% of staff admitted that they had changed their mind after meeting with a campaign contributor. And that is the kind of smoking gun evidence that we often struggle to find in political science. Um, but there's increasing evidence from political scientists like Josh Kalla and David Brockman. Uh, they ran this experiment where they got people to be campaign contributors, and then those people asked for meetings with uh, congressional offices. And what they found is when you give money, you're more likely to gain access to those offices. So what we've managed to show, both in my paper and that other paper, is that, look, campaign contributors are gaining access to politicians and their staff, and then they are changing the minds of politicians and their staff. And I think that that is a really key dynamic that we see uh, when we talk about climate gridlock and the lack of progress on this really pressing issue. When 
you're in this line of work, people often ask, so why haven't we done anything about climate change? And when I'm asked that question, I often hem and haw. I say, well, it's it's complicated. There are a lot of different reasons. There's money in politics. There's this split between what people want in the parties. It's, it's really hard to wrap your head around the scope of the problem. And so because we're often thinking about immediate issues, it's, it's very difficult to craft meaningful policy around something that's decades or even half a century off in the future. And in reality, what you're saying is, no, it boils down to pretty simply that incumbents have a very direct influence on the political process and the money going into politics has been a central reason why we haven't had the progress that we need to have. Yeah. So a lot of people feel that climate change is a personal problem, a behavioral problem. They need to recycle or fly less or compost. And, you know, I try to do a lot of those things, too. But guess what? It does not solve the problem. This is an institutional and political problem, and people need to understand that. And it really boils down to the power that electric utilities, fossil fuel companies, other carbon-intensive groups, even sometimes carbon-intensive unions, as my colleague Matt Mildenberger has shown in his work. You know, these companies and groups are vested in the status quo. They have a lot to lose in the transition. And it's not just money that they use to try to block the transition. In my book, I show that they use a lot of different levers. So um, when they have enough power, they go directly to politicians and they lobby behind the scenes to change language. I mean, if you think about the production tax credit or the investment tax credit, these are the big federal supports for wind and solar. Um, You know, those things expire all the time. They're currently slated to expire. And you compare that to fossil fuel subsidies like accelerated depreciation um, or uh, even the massive fossil fuel subsidy of not pricing carbon pollution. You know, those things don't have to be renewed every year. They just continue on in perpetuity. And that shows the power of the fossil fuel industry right there. Um, And so, you know, they have a lot of power to write laws, to change provisions. And the other thing they can do is they can go to public utility commissions, change the ways that laws are interpreted. Um, And then when they don't have enough power, let's say that these clean energy companies are starting to grow and they're starting to contest the fossil fuel status quo. Well, don't worry. There are still lots of ways that incumbents can keep their power. Um, And what we call that is expanding the scope of conflict after this very important political scientist named Schatzschneider. Expanding the scope of conflict is about making the fight bigger. And in my work, I show that they do that in three ways. So fossil fuel companies use the public, as we've talked about. They kind of construct certain views of the public or they mobilize certain segments to have a certain perspective. And that can be done in honest ways or can be done in astroturfing dishonest ways. Um, They also work through the party system. So I really believe that the polarization that we have seen around climate change and clean energy is driven by incumbents, electric utilities, and fossil fuel companies. There's lots of evidence of that, even though it's causally challenging to disentangle. And then the third way that they do it is through the courts. So they contest rulings at FERC or at public utility commissions. Um, and you see it right now. Finally, the courts are starting to be used as a tool for climate action with the attorney general in New York um, and other states going after ExxonMobil, for example. But how did ExxonMobil respond? Well, they sent a lot of money and lawyers right back at that office and tried to shut down the investigation. Um, so we should not be naive. These companies are 
massive. They have many employees. They have a lot of fossil fuel reserves still in the ground, and they have a lot to lose uh, in the clean energy transition. So yes, I tend to think that this is a big institutional battle, and it's about organized interest groups versus really the public um, and the cost that all of us are paying every day. And fossil fuel companies and electric utilities are really gaining the benefits from not acting on the climate crisis. Let's shift over to presidential climate politics. Talk first about the wide field of Democrats. Some of them are just relying on the Green New Deal, the the you know the vague resolution itself, and saying, "Yeah, I support that." Others are developing their own very in-depth plans. But in general, the climate conversation is stronger in this election season than it has been in past elections. How would you grade how the Democratic candidates are talking about this issue right now? Well, a number of NGOs have tried to do exactly that. Um, Greenpeace has a scorecard. 350 has a scorecard. Data for Progress has been scoring them. Um, I think that's an interesting exercise. I don't always agree with the answers that come out of those equations. Um, I think that uh, Elizabeth Warren has done a pretty amazing job of talking about these different issues, uh, talking about, for example, banning drilling on federal lands. She's also talked about uh, a big Marshall Plan to create the clean energy technology and then deploy that across the world. I think that her campaign understands the scale of the problem and really has good staffing on it. Uh, I would say the same is true, obviously, of Jay Inslee. He is, he is amazing. That man gives me hope every day. It's so clear to me that he is not running for president because he's likely to win, but because he cares about the future of all Americans. And um, that really is impressive. I think he does an amazing job in terms of balancing some of these sad and doom stories with hope and the future and painting a vision of clean energy jobs that, um, you know, have worker protections that bring everybody along. His team works tirelessly, as far as I can tell, to craft, you know, 50 page documents about how we're going to stop uh, oil and gas development that already is operating on public lands, about how we're going to hold fossil fuel companies accountable, about how we're going to make sure that the fossil fuel transition doesn't leave behind workers who are you know, losing their jobs in the fossil fuel industry. I mean, they really go to every corner of the issue and try to nail it down in, in really, you know, real details that could actually be implemented. And I think both of those candidates, Warren and Inslee, think about the ways that both executive action as well as legislative action could be used. And of course, it's going to be very hard uh, in the next Congress to make progress through legislative action. So I think that some of that clarity is really important. You also have um, candidates like Beto and uh, Biden who are putting out reports that I think, um, you know, have lots of ideas, but I do not necessarily feel have the staffing and commitment behind them to the same extent that I would say the Warren and Inslee plans do. So there's so much wrapped up in why a candidate takes a particular stance. One of those reasons is what the polls say. And I'm curious if we took away a lot of the other baggage from candidates and we just said, here's what voters want Here's what the polls say. Here's how people respond to this issue. What do you think the ideal policy platform for a Democratic candidate would be right now in this election season? I think that massive increases for research and development in clean energy is so important. We have an agency 
ARPA-E that is tasked with finding breakthrough technologies to solve some of the big challenges that we face with the climate crisis. And it is perennially underfunded. I mean, we should be spending money like we were spending in the 1970s when we had oil crises on clean energy. And we have never spent at that scale. We have spent far more money on fossil fuels and on nuclear. And I'm not against spending money on nuclear, but the fact is that renewables have never received the same kinds of R&D support as those other technologies. And that is extremely popular with the public. You know, we all have our inner techno-optimist who just hopes that the next breakthrough technology will solve this crisis for us, whether that's direct air capture or, um, you know, breakthroughs in battery technology. We're all hoping for that inside. And honestly, the United States is the innovation engine of the world. So I think that those investments would be really well spent, that they would bring a return like many of the loan guarantee programs and other investments that the federal government has made into clean energy. They've brought money back. So, you know, this is really a win-win, both from a public opinion perspective, from a solving the climate problem perspective, and from an economic perspective. I would say the second thing is getting a clean energy standard in place. Um, we have to accelerate the pace of uh, cleaning up our electricity system. Many people who follow energy closely have a folk theory that electricity is somehow an easy sector. And I want to assure you, it is not. I think passing a federal law that would require uh, clean energy in every state would be massive. Advocates have been trying valiantly to do that since the 1990s and have failed. And that, again, is a very popular idea. It has above 50% support with Republicans as well as massive, you know, 85 plus percent support with uh, Democrats and independents fall somewhere in between. And then the third thing, as I mentioned, that I'm pretty curious about is these legal approaches. And I would bet that the Harris team is going to focus on this in their climate policy when they come out with it, um, which is to go after fossil fuel companies for their negligence. That strategy is only just starting to develop right now. There are a few um, climate lawsuits playing out uh, in the states and also the work of some attorney generals, but I think that's pretty popular. So um, those are the things I would go with, as well as perhaps some supply side stuff like uh, banning new development on public lands and offshore. That's pretty popular too. Um, I would say that focusing on uh, banning Combustion engine cars is not a great idea because that's not super popular. I don't really know how we're going to solve that, whether it's a cash for clunkers program um, or massive subsidies for electric vehicles. Keep in mind right now we're about to see electric vehicle supports uh, phase out for many of the big EV companies like Tesla, for example. So that's that's a thorny issue that we're going to have to get our heads around that will involve Congress. Um, but it's it's pretty popular, I would say, to provide supports for the public uh, to join in on the transition. So can we talk about President Trump for a minute? Uh, a few days ago, as of the recording of this conversation, he stepped up to the podium in the White House and delivered a surprising speech. <laughs> uh, Orwellian speech about the environment and touted his environmental record. And I don't want to go through and like pick it apart. I'm more interested in why he did it. And and, and I'm wondering if you think that the people within the reelection team, his staffers looked at this issue and said, oh, actually, the environment pulls really well among conservatives. And we've got to do something about this as we enter the campaign season. Any thoughts about why this speech happened now? 
Yeah. So there's a broad pattern that um, when Republicans are in power and in the case of Trump doing massive rollbacks to all kinds of environmental laws, that's the time that we see the public demand more environmental policy. So that's just a baseline pattern. You can see it when Obama was president, the public was less concerned about environmental policy. And when Trump is, it swings in the other direction. Um, I think also we are seeing a massive shift in support for climate action. We already had high support, let's say about 70 percent, but it's getting even higher now. And I've been thinking a lot about why that is. Uh, I think it's people experiencing extreme events and the media doing a better job connecting those climate impacts back to um, people's everyday lives. I also think it's the elite messaging that we're doing. Uh, when we study American politics, we find a pretty common pattern, which is that, you know, the the politicians, they have microphones. They have the bully pulpit in the case of the presidency. And, you know, that really help affects how the public thinks about these issues. And I think that AOC's voice has been... Um, essential to raising the climate crisis as a really important issue in people's lives. Whether or not you agree with her, she has really put this issue on the agenda. Um, there are some other factors that I think matter, which is uh, the activism of groups like the Sunrise Movement, uh, as well as the Youth Climate Marches, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby 350. All of these groups have been really getting this issue in the media um, on a daily basis. And there's new research um, that shows, for example, in the case of Black Lives Matter protests, that these protests actually affect public opinion and tend to make the public more sympathetic. So you might have a folk theory that, oh, these radical young kids in Sunrise out there, you know, they're going to turn off conservatives or something like that. Well, actually, no, they, you know, people respect young people taking to the streets and speaking up about their future. Even conservatives have grandchildren, you know, and they can see that this is a really important issue. And I think activists have really done a great job of that. There's also, of course, the work of the IPCC and that report that came out last fall that sort of uh, was framed as we have 12 years to deal with this issue. I think that that really broke through to a lot of Americans. And the media reporting on the ways that Trump has been rolling back environmental policy policies across the board and appointing, you know, industry executives to the top of the EPA and the Department of Interior and everywhere else. Um, there's been amazing reporting on that. And I think that's also resonating with the people. So, yes, he had to get up and lie through his teeth about his environmental record because Trump has nothing good to say about his environmental record. And I think that the American public is starting to understand that. They're starting to see that, wow, the climate crisis is at our doorstep and the federal government is not does not have our backs on this issue. So I think that Trump is going to face some serious heat uh, to push the metaphor of global warming a little farther on this issue during the 2020 election. And I think that is why he he got up and gave that terrible speech about his environmental record. You know, if you had asked me that question before seeing some of this polling about the Green New Deal, I would have said, well, it doesn't really matter if he takes heat because we're so split on this issue that Democrats can talk all this day until they're blue in the face. But a lot of Republican voters just won't care about the environment enough. And although it's it's certainly not a top tier issue for Republicans, it, it has become more important. And I guess this brings me to my final question, which is bringing us back to the original premise, which is what has the Green New Deal revealed about the electorate and this current political moment in energy climate politics? Maybe that surprised you or 
that would surprise other people when reevaluating this issue? You know, we've all been waiting for the Green New Deal for a long time. We have been waiting for somebody to speak truth to power and to say that the scale of this crisis is massive, that it touches all kinds of Americans from every walk of life all across this country, and that we cannot continue to deny and delay. I think that um, whether or not we ever see a Green New Deal pass Congress, it has fundamentally reshaped the climate conversation. For too long, economists were really the dominant voices in the room, and they said, look, we just need to get this little incremental marginal price on carbon. We just need to, you know, tweak the prices on pollution, and it will magically fix everything. Thing. And I think that the Green New Deal has been a seismic shift in that rhetoric because it says that we can't talk about the climate crisis in that way because A, it will not solve the problem, and B, it will not be politically acceptable. You know, if you just increase Americans' costs to fuel their cars, to light up their homes, to just do their everyday tasks by raising the cost of energy through a carbon price, that is not going to be popular. And why is that not going to be popular? Because we have growing income inequality and wage stagnation that cuts across racial lines in this country. You know, that is why we have to understand that climate change is about social policy, is about lots of different issues that Americans are facing. You know, Julian Noiscat from Data for Progress wrote an excellent article in The Guardian, which really lays out why climate policy is a social justice issue. And I think that uh, that's just true. If we take the approach that economists have been telling us to take, we are likely to face massive resistance from the public and fail to solve the problem. So why not come up with a legislative package that's popular and that is at the scale of the problem? That is what the promise of the Green New Deal is. And I think we're going to be talking about these ideas for a very long time, whether it's called the Green New Deal at the end of the day when a legislative package finally passes Congress. I don't know. But the fact is, it's been 10 years since the Waxman-Markey bill. And we cannot afford to wait any longer to start dealing with the climate crisis. Who said academia was boring and slow moving and stodgy? God help me. I mean, honestly, the last four months of my life have been insane. It's like I don't sleep enough anymore. Dr. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. That's going to do it, folks. Thank you for listening. Again, Shale was on vacation this week. I am on paternity hiatus for a few weeks. I have a baby girl due any day now. If you're hungry for more content, you've got plenty to choose from. Um, First, go to our back episodes here on The Interchange. We've got a lot of good stuff that is fairly evergreen that's still relevant. We have, of course, the Energy Gang podcast, hundreds of episodes that you can go back and revisit probably want to check out the more recent stuff because it's uh, more tied to the news cycle. And then we've got that podcast I was telling you about from Uplight, formerly Tendril. It's uh, Illuminators. It's this five-part series on lessons from the history of business disruption, how to apply them to energy. I was involved in the production of that series, and uh, I think you'll like it. It was on Apple's new and noteworthy for a number of days. So thanks for listening to this show. If you like it, please give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts. It does does help us a lot. I will catch you in a few weeks. I am off to hopefully soon meet my new child, and then I'll be back with you in a few weeks. I am Stephen Lacey. 
This is the Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.